2: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day. Just subscribe to our free email newsletter, assembled under the editorial direction of Mr. Jeremy Goldhorn. Better yet, sign up for our premium membership program, SubChina Access, and get all sorts of bonus goodies. Discounts to events, free entry to live Seneca tapings, and the chance to harass Jeremy and me and Anthony Tao and all the rest of the editorial team. On our Slack channel. Joins for chats there also with special guests. I'm Kaiju Guo, and I am in Beijing today at my mom's house on Mutton Alley in the as yet unhipstified Hutongs of Xicheng District. Joining me from 13 time zones away in Nashville, Tennessee is Jin Yu Mi. How are you, Jeremy? Uh oh, oh, right. Beijing wanted me to say hi. Um, all 22 million of us uh, y- You know, for obvious reasons They miss the hijinks of what it's more infamous Foreigners uh, But
1: Well, tell all of them hello from me And that I miss them and of course, I miss lovely Beijing.
2: Well, let's jump right in because this is a really fascinating topic today. So anyone who has studied China at all has inevitably learned a fair bit about China's rivers. The civilization was, after all, born on the floodplains of the Yellow River. Uh, the first imperial dynasty, the Qin, built its power in the natural stronghold. It is the Valley of the Wei River, the Yangtze or the Changjiang, has long been China's vital commercial artery and the Pearl River Delta, of course, is China's commercial heart. Uh, Six of Asia's most important rivers, including the Lansang or Mekong and the Brahmaputra, all have their headwaters in what is today China. Uh, Scholars like the German-American sinologist Karl Wittvogel uh, famously argued that the oriental despotism that he said characterized China had its very roots in the the management of rivers and irrigation systems. Um, And even if you don't buy all of that, Uh, Surely you do recognize the centrality, basically, of rivers in the whole
1: shaping of Chinese civilization, of the Chinese national character, of state, of society. Modern China has sought to meet more and more of its energy needs through hydropower and has famously built what stood for many years as the world's largest hydroelectric station by installed capacity at the Three Gorges Dam on the Yangtze. That's obviously the most famous, but China has thousands upon thousands of hydroelectric dams on nearly every major river in the country. In fact, China has more dams than any other country on Earth, and more importantly, has more large dams of over 15 meters in height by a huge margin.
2: But all all that dam building has come at significant cost, Uh, massive displacement of people, uh, destruction of cultural and natural treasures, uh, threats to to fish uh, and other wildlife and to fisheries, uh, silting and salinization of deltas. These are all issues with dams that many people are aware of, but maybe perhaps less well-known are the greenhouse gas emissions and very likely even seismic catastrophes that can result
1: from damming. The issue of hydroelectric dams, then, is quite a divisive one that puts people within the broad environmental movement on different sides of certain questions. Hydropower is renewable, and it's arguably much better than burning fossil fuels, but it incurs really significant costs of its own. And it's also clear that neither the impact of Chinese dam
2: building nor the dam building itself has stopped at China's borders. Uh, rivers play a very important role in international relations, and not just with China's downstream neighbors, but also with the many geographies around the world where Chinese have financed and, and built dams. So, today to talk about all things riparian, not just dams, we are delighted to have as our guest on the Seneca podcast, Stephanie Jensen-Cormier, who is China Program Director for the NGO International Rivers. Stephanie, welcome to
1: Seneca.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Kaiser. Wonderful to be here.
1: Stephanie, perhaps you can start off by just telling us a little bit about International Rivers and the scope of work you do in China.
0: Yeah, so International Rivers is an NGO that was created out of the U.S. um, by a bunch of uh, volunteers, basically, back in 1985. And since then, it has evolved into an organization that's still quite small, actually, for the, the total budget that we have and also um, the staff size that we have, which is at about 20. But now we're, <laughs> we're based in a lot more places. We've got a presence in Brazil, uh, we've got a team in Southeast Asia based out of Bangkok and um, Burma, and uh, a team in um, South Asia and India, and um, South Africa, where we have an office in Pretoria, and we've got um, a presence here in Beijing as well, in Ch- for China.
2: Wow, I mean, 20 people, and you're spread out over what, I mean, I, I lost count, but that was like nine offices or something. Yeah, like no,
0: that. it's about five offices. Oh, okay, yeah. oh, wow. But rivers are, you know, rivers are all over the world, so it's, it's, it's quite key to have these people um, based in, in regions where there are big impacts and, and uh, issues related to the rivers. So International Rivers has been based in China for about five years. And in that time, we've had a lot of interactions with hydropower companies because it turns out that Chinese hydropower companies are some of the most prominent in the world. Um, China, for example, has about Chinese companies have about 50 percent of the market share of global hydropower projects everywhere else in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, kind of like how you were telling the listeners in the introduction, China has the most um, dams in the country than any other place in the world. And a big proportion of those are large, large scale dams. So basically, most rivers in the country... Have these um, structures on them. So, Chinese companies have become actually quite uh, savvy at building dams. And so they've been quite active at building dams in other countries. It it makes sense.
2: Right. So, the Beijing office must be a really important one then.
0: So, the Beijing office is really uh, works with all of the different offices that we have. Uh, You know, our colleagues in Brazil constantly are asking us to have some sort of interface with um, companies that are considering projects in the Amazon. There are a lot of projects, um, about 70% of the projects that chinese companies are involved in are actually in southeast asia so we have the most interaction with our um, colleagues down in southeast asia but uh-huh. there's also a growing number of projects in latin america and in africa
2: oh wow so you coordinate with all of the international offices on this stuff
0: yeah and fortunately over the past few years um international rivers has managed to have a relationship with hydropower companies some of the some of the big builders
2: like sino hydro like
0: sino hydro like china three gorges um, Gojoba, all of those big players, where we um, bring to their attention certain issues that they might not necessarily be aware of, uh, which kind of maybe sounds funny because these are such large companies that um, that they should, they should have some sort of an idea of the social impacts and sometimes the environmental impacts. But uh, they actually appreciate having uh, some of this context and background knowledge. It it, it can inform their decisions Sometimes not to get involved in very destructive projects or in projects where uh, local resistance might cause delays and uh, and would affect basically their bottom line.
2: Yeah, and we'll talk about some of those victories that you've had. That that's, that's terrific. Uh, in my little introduction just now, I rattled off a whole lot of issues that are related, you know, just to damming on the rivers. But uh, as I said, there's there's obviously a whole lot more to consider than just dams. There's also all sorts of water use rights and, and I guess, pollution and wildlife management, I suppose. Uh, So what does your organization prioritize? Are you really pretty focused on dams uh, or... Are, are there other issues that you try to take on as well? I mean, I, you have a pretty small team, right?
0: Yeah, we have a very small team. And we like to give credit where credit is due. And I think right now there are all sorts of very positive trends that are happening in China. So in China, China actually matters so much in terms of rivers because it, it shares borders with, I think it's 14 different countries, but it shares about 110 uh, lakes and rivers with 18 countries. So it's, you know, you talk about the... Belt and Road Initiative, for example, is connecting China to the rest of the world. Well, the rivers in China connect China to a lot of different countries. Um, Mm -hmm. So we we do, you know, and there are positive things that are happening um, within China um, with regards to river management and restoration of rivers. And so we, we kind of analyze those trends as well.
1: Great. And we'll talk about many of those issues. But starting with dams, though, can you give us a sense of the scale of dam building in China? How many dams exactly are there in China? How many large ones? And how does this compare to the United States?
0: Yeah, uh, well, in China, there the estimates are that there's about 87,000 uh, dams in the country. Oh, my God. Yeah, but it compares fairly, it's, it, it, it's you know, it, not such a big um, difference with the number of dams in the U.S. where there are 84,000. The big difference is actually in the number of large dams, uh, which have very significant impacts on the environment and also in terms of, people, uh, you know, having to, to re- relocate people. And in China, there's about 23,000 uh, large dams. That's, I think that's 40% of the world's total.
1: Wow. 40% of the world's large dams yeah. in China. Oh, right. My yeah. God.
0: They've displaced an equivalent of almost the entire population of Canada, which is where I'm from. <laughs> yeah. What's
2: that, like 23 million like 20, people? 23 million,
0: million, probably a little bit uh, over that. Canada only has a population of 30 million.
2: Stephanie, we had lunch the other day, and one of the the horrifying statistics that you told me uh, was just the sheer number of rivers uh, that have simply disappeared. Uh, Can you remind me how many rivers there were just like 30 or 40 years ago and and how many there are today?
0: Yeah, sure. So according to the Chinese Bureau of Statistics... um, This is
2: the Chinese number, then?
0: Yes, yeah. There were 50,000 rivers 30 years ago, and today there's only about 22 or 23,000 of those rivers left in China.
1: Oh, gosh, that is... That is pretty shocking. Uh, 23,000 rivers, <laughs> 23,000
2: large dams. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea it was that bad. Yeah. Oh, my God. So that's so that's less than half of the number less of rivers. Less than, yeah, rivers.
0: less than half of the number, of, more than half of the number of rivers have disappeared.
2: What's happened to those rivers? I mean, is this just, Basically, the result of human activity like damming or, or sucking off water for irrigation yeah. or for industry.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly it. It's also the fact that you know China has been uh, the manufacturing center for the world, and right. you need a lot of water um, for a lot of industries. The agricultural sector is also quite um, water intensive. And so there's been a lot of water that has been diverted for, for industry and for agriculture, but then also large-scale hydropower, small-scale hydropower, and, uh, and, and pollution, contamination. Yeah.
1: What's the relationship with Sino-Hydro been like? Um, you painted it in a, a fairly positive light uh, just now, but it's hard to believe that they don't actually regard you as a particularly annoying gadfly. Uh, like they see your name on their appointment calendar and sign, exasperation.
0: I think I think it's probably mixed, and it depends on the individuals at the company. Uh, some some certainly are much more receptive to speaking um, with NGOs and, and and with us. And I think some some people really do see us as a as a Sora and, and uh, preventing them from from being effective and building projects that they actually want to build and and we've had and I've, I've i've definitely had all sorts of those kinds of interactions as well where you know i've been told that i was a, a spy you know who's trying to circumvent their projects exactly um and, and 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 a lot of the time the engineers that work for these companies really do uh, think that they're doing something for the benefit of people in other countries or people in China, because sure. they're giving access to electricity, uh, to energy, to electricity, and improving sure. people's lives, um, and basically lifting people out of poverty. That's the big thing that they're, that, you know, Chinese government wants to try and spearhead.
2: Well, I, I see in a lot of the literature you guys put out, and I've, I've read quite a bit of it now, You you're always, you always make that point. You always sort of Point out the positive things that that hydropower does, and 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 good things about it as, as well. So, I mean, so I think it's it's fair. That, I mean, you present a pretty balanced view of things, right? And you you I think portray your your concern as entirely constructive, and and you make. You know, good suggestions along those ways. Uh, do you think that you're sort of winning the argument right now in China? Do you think that there's a lot more thinking, a lot more debate, a lot more study happening before the decisions are made and before they start, you know, pouring concrete?
0: There definitely is uh, more interest in the for, for the Chinese companies to um, to speak with NGOs about the projects in which they're involved in. So these companies see it as being quite strategic to, to talk to NGOs. Uh, they want to have an idea of what's happening on the ground, and they also want to know uh, what they can do to improve the quality of their projects. So sometimes NGOs like International Rivers would have suggestions about what they can do to improve the outcomes for uh, local people who might be affected by the projects. But I think in terms of the bigger picture, which is how are we faring with this topic with this issue construction of hydropower all over the world I think that we might see that 2017 could very well be the last year where the hydropower projects, commissioning of hydropower projects, weighs above other renewable energy uh, projects because okay. the trend is actually by, by, that...
2: By gigawatts or by, by... Yeah,
0: by gigawatts, by capacity, and by, by also by the total uh, amount of outlet, money yeah, yeah that's invested in those kinds of projects.
2: Right now, it's what, 16% globally of... of- electricity is generated through hydropower right? yes uh, what, I, what about in china
0: um in china it's about the same okay, yeah okay yeah.
1: it's comparable to the rest of the world That's yeah you've had some successes around the world but also in china can you talk about some of your organization's wins where, where it's pretty clear that your suggestions are being heard or where you've made a difference and actually managed to stop uh, a bad project
0: Yeah, there were a couple of uh, projects both in China and outside of China. Actually, there was um, a dam a couple of years ago in Honduras, which actually is still going ahead, but it used to have Chinese involvement with Sinohydro. It's called Aquazarka, and there was oh, right, a lot yeah, of really indigenous rubbish. resistance to to this project. And based on advice from International Rivers and other local groups, uh, Sino actually decided to pull out from that project. Oh, good. And it turned out to be a, a good decision because this project has continued to have all of these huge difficulties because there is so much resistance from indigenous communities. And actually, two years ago, the Honduran uh, company actually com- had the leader of this indigenous movement um, called Kopin murdered, right. and that and so this is continuing to be a story that's really marring the project with all sorts of negative attention. So Sinohydro pulled out of that one, and there have been a couple of others in other in uh, in in other countries, and in China as well. There was. Xianan Hai Dam on the Yangtze River, Mm -hmm. which was supposed to go ahead, and it would have meant that a um, red line for a fish reserve would have to be redrawn. So they were going to change what they, you know, what the existing
2: minimum level minimum level yes
0: was going to be, and so a whole bunch of NGOs in in China and outside of China uh, were. Providing all sorts of documentation of what the impacts would have been on 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 the fish. Um, it's a food this.
2: security issue, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And uh, and so that project didn't go ahead either. There was also a cascade of dams along the New River in the southwest of China in, in Yunnan that was um, that was cancelled a couple of times. And uh, this was this back in two thousand when. Thirteen of those dams were, were planned to be built and environmental activists wrote to Wen Jiabao and got Wen Jiabao to actually say that these projects should not go ahead until there had been further uh, geological studies because there are many, many fault lines as well as environmental impact assessments. Uh, that That moment was actually a very important time for the environmental movement in China. It was like their first major victory. Tell us
2: about the, the new river. The, it's in Yunnan mainly, like Sichuan and Yunnan, is that right?
0: Yeah, or? no, the new river starts in the Tibetan oh, Plateau Tibet, right, right, right. and flows uh, through Yunnan. And then it actually goes through Burma and Thailand, where it's where it known becomes, as the yeah. Salween River. And so it's an important river for, it's important for the country's downstream. And a cascade of dams, of 13 dams at the time, and then in the 12 five-year plan, um, I think seven of those had been reinstated that would have had a really big impact on many people who depend on that river. And uh, Actually, so although there were dams that were planned on the new river in the 12th five-year plan, they were never built. And um, by the time the 13th five-year plan came out, they were no longer there.
2: Oh, that's very good news. Yeah. And uh, the new is still one of the last sort of major, mostly free-flowing river. Is it free-flowing? In, flowing? China, in yeah, China, in China. Yeah, China. yeah it's, China, it's right.
0: free-flowing. It has small hydropower projects that are, you know, on the sides that you can right. see. But it, it, yeah, it's it's a free-flowing river.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's good. I, I want you to take us through the regulatory landscape. I know it's very complicated. Maybe you can explain uh, what agencies have responsibility for management of rivers and for, you know, issues related to, to rivers at the central level, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about the sub provincial level as well, where I know you, you've, you've got a lot of good things to say. Uh, and then there's been this major ministry reorganization that was just announced in March. So, what ministry now would have oversight on these issues? And do you think this is going to make your work easier or harder? Or is it, how's it going to complicate things?
0: There are a lot of ministries and a lot of government groups that are uh, kind of responsible for some parts of the oversight of rivers. Uh, the two main ones being the Ministry of Water Resources uh-huh. and the Ministry of Environmental Protection. But there's also ways in which um, river basin parts of the river basins are also managed by the State Forestry Administration. So it really is a case of all of the you know the nine dragons managing water. So it's always lots. nine dragons. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Nine dragons stirring up the South China Sea. Nine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but no, that that's that's probably true. There's so there's there's actually a lot of jurisdictional
0: overlap and conflict. Yes, and actually one of the one of the positive outcomes, and we'll see this later on when the when the um, the announced sh- you know ministerial shakeup actually takes effect is uh, is the fact that they're trying to streamline the responsibilities and you can see that kind of already happening where now in China um, every river and every lake uh, every body of water basically has got one person that has been designated to be responsible for all aspects of that body of water. So these are called river chiefs. Mm -hmm. And right now there's about 200,000 such river chiefs. And so they are government workers at all different levels. So there's provincial uh, river chiefs for some of the bigger rivers, and then there's some at the township level for smaller rivers. But this one person is kind of responsible and accountable for what happens with that river.
2: Accountable. So, how does that actually work?
0: Well, his uh, job performance depends on it. Right. Yeah. Right, right. And this is this is new. So, these two hundred thousand uh, river chiefs have just uh, started to be implemented this year, and um, the intention is that by the end of two thousand and eighteen, that all rivers actually have uh, somebody like this that's designated. You can already see it if you look at most most rivers. Um, there's actually billboards that sh- clearly identify the name of the person and mm-hmm. sometimes there's several at different levels their contact information their telephone number QR codes for you to for for people to report any violations on the rivers so they're moving away towards i think a, a management system that's a lot more integrated and right. doesn't doesn't have overlapping responsibilities all over the place where uh, people just don't need to take ownership of what's happening
2: so a river chief's responsibilities i mean say maybe the metrics on which his performance would be evaluated are like Pollution levels in the river.
0: Exactly. Uh,
2: instances of of dumping or whatever. Exactly. Uh, maybe even even maybe
0: cubic meter flow. I don't know. Yes, if you all have, of you all know. of those actually, wow. and improving the water level sometimes as well. So we've seen already um, along some of the smaller tributaries of the Yangtze River, uh, local officials shutting down all sorts of small scale. Uh, farmers who uh, farm pork or, or chickens or ducks, even uh-huh. because that contributes to the contamination of the river and they need to oh, clean floating it up. Floating
1: pig bodies in the river, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh.
0: Yeah, just the waste that they generate, actually. Yeah.
1: I found it really interesting how you wrote the op ed for the China Daily that we read. As I read it, I couldn't help but thinking about the strategy involved, the way you framed issues, how you couched your ideas and lots of appeal to history and culture, national identity, and how the tone was very positive about things like uh, the ministerial reorganization seems like a kind of a standard approach that smart NGOs use in China. Can you talk a little bit about how it works for an NGO like yours that's dealing with a fairly controversial issue, where you have definitely have some official support, but you're also taking on some pretty big entrenched interests?
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, I, you know, I actually believe a lot of the stuff in in the, that I write. I think that rivers are really important to uh, to, to people. They're important um, ecosystems. They're critical in having us adapt to climate change. Even you know, they're they're very important carbon sinks. They bring they bring carbon, they flow, make carbon flow downstream into oceans where it gets sequestered. And they're important in terms of um, flood control. So having healthy rivers really benefits humanity, you know, people generally.
2: By the way, I mean, well, I did mention damming is like a... Uh, a a a terrible uh, co- contributor to to global warming to uh, to greenhouse gases. How does that work? So for the the sequestration, so it's just washing a lot of biomass down into the oceans where it can it can be stored, right?
0: Yes, exactly. And then what and when happens you, if it's down? so? If you build if you build a wall basically in a river and uh-huh. you create a reservoir, uh, when the reservoir floods, uh, there's you you basically will have biomass like the vegetation that decomposes uh, right. inside of the with the with the water and that that chemical reaction with the water and the and the decomposing vegetation creates methane um and, and that's, carbon dioxide. Stuff, really and, that's bad, right? and that's pretty potent it's yeah. uh it's uh
2: a lot more potent than carbon dioxide. a lot more
0: potent yeah. than yeah. carbon dioxide like
2: multiples i mean like like at order, least 30 yeah. times wow. yeah
0: yeah okay. and and um there have been all sorts of scientific studies and, and, and reviews and, and, you know, academic journals about the impacts of or the, the generation of greenhouse gas emissions from reservoirs, from, hyd- from hydropower, from dams generally. And um, apparently they they account for two to four percent of um, anthropocentric greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, wow. Just the reservoirs.
2: Oh, my God. That's that's a very I mean, that's that's a that's incredibly not significant num- yeah, yeah,
0: that's not negligible.
2: Yeah. And and dam building activity by humans, I, I imagine that's just stepped up like crazy just in the last 30 or 40 years, yeah?
0: Yeah.
2: Okay. Um,
0: in the name of it being a renewable energy technology, which is, that that's kind of where it...
2: The
1: terrible irony. Yeah.
2: yeah, the terrible irony.
1: Stephanie, you mentioned that progress has been particularly good on the Yangtze River. Can you talk about what's happening now? I understand that Xi Jinping has actually forbidden any building on the river downstream for a certain point. Is that correct?
0: So the Yangtze River is very significant for China. It um, flows completely within the country. It, it kind of connects the country's west to the east, um, where it flows out of Shanghai. And about 40% of the um, China's GDP comes from the, from the Yangtze River Basin region, and about 70% of the hydropower generated in China also comes from the Yangtze River Basin. A lot of people are also living in this area as well. But the river has completely deteriorated over time because it's been it's it's just been used so much for uh, for power generation, for agriculture. Uh, Water has been diverted from the river and uh, and it's used for industry. So in early 2016, uh, President Xi actually announced that for a very large part of the Yangtze River, so all the way from Chongqing, uh, Chongqing Sichuan area, all the way until where the Yangtze River um, empties, that this would be a, a special zone where no more large-scale um, development could happen within. I think it's two kilometers of the river. Mm. That's that's huge. That's a that's a very big. Uh, that that's that that's a, that was a big announcement, and I think, and that's actually has been happening since then. It's been implemented very very quickly.
2: That'd be good news for the finless river dolphin, or, or whatever that guy is, right?
0: But I think he's gone already by right now. Are they?
2: Are they? Or
0: the the, the the baiji, the baiji, the, okay, the river right. dolphin. Right. The river dolphin is gone.
2: Oh, wow! And
0: yes. I think that was as a result of all sorts of activities on the Yangtze, including mm. the hydropower that's been that's whoa. been built. But there's you're right. There's the finless porpoise, which people are still trying to look for, and I, I think the numbers are not looking good.
2: There's also some soft shell tortoise, right? Yeah, or turtle, right? Yeah,
0: there's the Yangtze soft, shell, giant soft shell turtle, and um, it it was in that area. It was also, I think, um, supposed to be around the Red River, and it was. Um, but this is now the most endangered turtle in the world. There's only two left that we know of. Two. Maybe one more.
2: <laughs> two left in the world.
0: Yeah, they're in uh, a zoo and Suzhou. I hope they're
2: female and male.
0: They are female and male. Okay. <laughs> I hope um, they're
2: really horny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they um he he's apparently um got a problem with his appendage and uh, d- that got that got um that got broken or that got <laughs> that got um you know
2: that Yeah, yeah. You think there's like art, art, artificial insemination for there's, turtles? There, yeah, or? so
0: he so they were trying to get the turtles to reproduce for a long time. Um, you know, scientists were coming all the way from the US even to to help with it to try and get them to reproduce right. but soft
2: shell soft oh, no. the, and also <laughs> the the
0: interesting thing is they live for a long time so both of these specimens are like 80 years old but they can continue to reproduce until until they die basically oh great yeah, yeah. um but the but the appendage of the of the male turtle was kind of broken some somehow <laughs> and so that wasn't happening and then they tried to do artificial insemination and still have not managed to have any positive results even though the female has been laying all sorts of eggs.
2: Well, you know, tortoises have really slow swimming sperm. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, So you mentioned a lot of the the, the hydroelectric generation is on on the, you know, more like the upper Yangzi, right? You know, the the parts in before Chongqing. Uh, It seems like the endowments of hydropower are pretty... Uh, unevenly distributed in China geographically. Uh, can you talk about the, the how they are distributed and then maybe the projects that are underway to make, you know, hydropower resources in one part of the country uh, benefit bring benefits to other parts of the country? There's some gigantic transfer project. In.
0: Yeah, that's true. So, Water resources are not evenly distributed in the country. If you right. divide China at the Yangtze River, actually, you've got um, I think about fifty percent of the population in the north and fifty percent in the south. But seventy percent of China's water resources are in the south, so they're mostly in um, in the southwest and in, in in Yunnan, Sichuan, Tibet, of course, right. which is the headwaters for a lot where a lot of these rivers originate. So while these places, uh, yeah, so these places have a lot of water, uh, and so there's this, these are the regions where hydropower building has been, uh, has been going at a very fast speed. Right, yeah, yeah. At the same time, though, right now, there's like an overcapacity of power in provinces like Yunnan and Sichuan. And there's a lot of curtailment. So there's a lot of power that just is generated from hydro that doesn't really go anywhere. Ah. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that has also happened at the same time is that there are uh, power transfer projects. So there's a West East power transfer project that aims to bring some of the energy generated from Yunnan over to Guangdong, which is oh, very right. energy in- intensive. There's a lot of industry there
2: but uh, they don't have a lot of hydropower down there.
0: Yeah. No, yeah, their rivers are not as abundant as, as as in those other provinces. There's also all sorts of really large-scale infrastructure projects to kind of supply water for people to use because the north is so arid.
2: Right, there's that south-north um, exactly. water transfer project. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Gigantic, yeah.
0: And even for Beijing to, to supply water to Beijing, there's all sorts of even smaller ones, uh, smaller transfer projects. Like uh, there's one that's under discussion right now, which is called hongqihe the uh-huh. Red Flag River, which would just be a canal, basically to bring to bring <laughs> water to Beijing, right, so right, that right. it could be used here.
2: God knows we know it. we need. I mean, our water table here is dropping by like ten meters a year, or some crap like that. And and still, it's the price of water fun. doesn't really
0: reflect reflect
2: it. Right, right. So I was told my daughter to take shorter showers, but it's, uh, it's terrible.
1: Let's talk about water pollution. We're always seeing ghastly statistics about the amount of surface water that is completely unfit for consumption. I think the number I recall is that 80% of surface water is unsafe. Is China actually making good progress on that front?
0: Yeah, there were, there were uh, statistics that came out about how contaminated the water tables were a couple of years ago. And I think that shocked a lot of people because mostly, you know, the average person was um, concerned about the air and they weren't really thinking about water necessarily. Right. The water kind of impacts their food and the, you know, the, the safety of their food or the quality of their food that they would be eating. But this this has been this has been an issue that has come to the attention of people and the government actually prioritizes um, pollution and contamination and they have this scheme to try and uh, improve the the water quality of all of these different uh, bodies of water it's quite metric uh, centric and uh, uh, there's there's numbers and standards for different water quality levels and they're generally trying to improve all of the water quality levels
2: you think they've made some discernible progress so far are you saying well i think i think attention to it
0: well part part of the this water chiefs system a river chief system is also to improve the the quality of the water right so now that the river chiefs are in place, and that there is one person that's accountable, and his job or her job matters. The perform their job performance uh, is linked to the rivers. the The water quality part is a really is is key, I think, to that. Mm, I've met with um, a couple of local officials in um, Guizhou and uh, and uh, Chongqing, and and they really seem to be uh, very focused on quality improvements now whether the, the numbers that they then report are actually the real numbers and everything is another story, but I think that's kind of what we're going to be seeing as trends.
2: Oh, good. Yeah, that's that's encouraging. Uh, I know this is not your area of specialization, but can you talk a little bit about this idea of, of reservoir-induced seismicity uh, where large reservoirs, you know, uh, because you've got so much water there, they, they actually sort of like bear down so much weight on the fissures on, on, on tectonic Plates, or I, I don't know how the mechanism actually works, but it supposedly creates earthquakes. And in fact, there are a lot of people. I mean, we're we're coming up on the tenth year anniversary of the Winchuan. We're coming up on the tenth year anniversary of the Winshan earthquake, and I, I remember reading a lot of, of of suggestions that that was actually a, a seismically uh, a seismic event that was induced by our reservoir.
0: Yes. Uh, that's that's uh, that's definitely true. Um, there are geologists who have been studying this, and I think you know it's very important for people planning projects to consider what fault lines uh, the project might be falling on. Sometimes, mm. sometimes huge uh, dams are, are are built really close to fault lines, and and that has an impact. Yeah, um, yeah there are there are um, geologists who have said that the Tzipinggu Dam uh, was. Uh, provoked uh, the Wenchuan uh, earthquake,
2: which was just a, a, a horrible. Thing. It was May twelfth of two thousand eight that um, I felt it here in Beijing. Wow, which is unbelievable.
0: And that's and it's not and it's not the only one. There are all sorts of cases um, for for other other projects.
2: I guess that would make some sense. I mean, uh, a lot of if you look at where where waterfalls are, often they kind of result from tectonic activity. You know, when there's there's a sudden like shift in plates, and then. So then you have a waterfall, right? Uh, exactly, and, and then so you
0: but you build a reserve, you build a reservoir, and you're just you're putting adding, a lot of weight. Tons of yeah. weight
2: onto it, yeah. I guess water weighs a whole lot more just than, than earth, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Especially
0: uh, in a short, in a short time when these things happen in a very short time frame.
2: So is it just the weight, or is I mean, I I, I remember just reading one of those articles years ago, um, saying that it lubricated the the. The plates and allowed them to slip against each other more easily, or something like that. Anyway, maybe that's more yeah. the
0: maybe that's a technical explanation for it as well.
2: Yeah, right. um, and you think that, that's pretty widely accepted now? Then yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I, yeah, I think it was it was controversial years ago, but I guess the the science has come come to to basically accept this idea that that's good. I mean, again, uh, good news. Well,
0: this is the geological surveying is an important component of uh, responsible <laughs> hydropower planners. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. What about Chinese dam building internationally? We talked about how your organization had helped talk Sino Hydro to pull out of that project in Honduras. But I imagine that Chinese financing, engineering, and labor must account for a huge proportion of dam construction globally, especially in the developing world. I think you said 40% of the projects. Yeah. And I think your organization has been tracking that too. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so for for many years now, maybe close to a decade, International Rivers has uh, the China program has maintained um, a database of all of the of all of the dams, not just hydropower projects, because, of course, there's irrigation and flood control um, dams as well, uh-huh. in which Chinese companies or Chinese financiers are involved. And we we just did the latest updates at the end of um, 2017, and it seems like there's about 266 hydropower projects in which Chinese Corporations are involved. Chinese mm-hmm. companies are involved, and they t- in in about sixty some countries. So it's they're everywhere. <laughs> they're in a lot of different places.
2: Some of the ones that have gotten attention though, um, a, a few years ago, there was a dam in Burma that was actually stopped. It's called the I'm um, so, I don't know how to pronounce it. Mitzon, the Mitzon Dam
0: on the Irrawaddy in in uh, in Burma. It actually is suspended, and this is one of the things that happens with a lot of uh, hydropower projects. They don't. They don't, like, die outright because they can always be invoked to come back again. It depends on the government. It's these, a these zombie thing. dams? You zombie dams, from, yeah, yeah. We've done videos with International Rivers on, on zombie dams, these projects that just come back to life um, years later with new governments and people who want to somehow build a legacy for themselves in their country. Um, and the mid-zone, mid, so mid-zone is, is, is suspended and it seems like the financing is going to shift into another direction because China had already put in about $800 million into mid-zone wow. when um, Aung San Suu Kyi had said, we don't want this to happen anymore. And so, of, of course, the Chinese were not happy about this and mm-hmm. needed to have alternatives for what they could uh, shift shift their projects too um so it looks like they're they might be undertaking some small scale hydro and also have they now seem to have access to a port that they can develop in in Burma
2: interesting um there's also Um, one in in the DRC in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh that we'd been talking about the other day I think it's called the uh, the Inga 3 right Yeah,
0: yeah so the Inga 3 um dam which is Pretty controversial uh, right now is part of a larger project that's been in consideration in, in the DRC for a very long time, called the Gran Inga project. It's on and the Congo River. It's right? on the Congo River, and there are two dams that have already been built, and this would be um, a third one. It's kind of controversial because it seems to be marred with all sorts of corruption issues, which is not uncommon for for projects of this scale. And then this is one of the things that companies need to pay attention to. And only 15% of the population in in the DRC has access to electricity so you think that most of the um, electricity is going to go to the DRC but it's not it actually would be uh, transmitted all the way to South Africa oh, God. so that so you need to also build the transmission lines South Africa is actually quite far away so it, it is encountering issues and there's a lot of uh, local groups that are asking for more studies in fact the the man who's in charge who is responsible for the development of the project um, for the Inga project, actually had, had, had made some comment, I think it's last year or fairly recently, about how uh, they weren't going to even undertake environmental impact um, studies. And he had even suggested, well, why don't NGOs like you, International Rivers, commission or finance the studies for us if you're so concerned about the project? <laughs> Jesus.
1: Jesus. China is an upstream country where so many of the major rivers in South and Southeast Asia originate. So let's talk about how that affects China's relations with its downstream neighbors, especially in the Lansang-Mekong region. China had not actually taken part in one of the earlier multinational organizations that was looking at river issues. But has China been playing nicer with its neighbors more recently?
0: Yeah. So there used to be this commission called the Mekong River Commission, uh, which Inclu- wait, so the Mekong, the Mekong, um, the Mekong River crosses six countries, but there were only four countries that were part of the Mekong River Commission. Both China and Burma were observers, okay. and they didn't actively they didn't actively take part in decisions that were being made and sharing information with the other countries. And China, of course, is quite key because the Mekong River in China is known as the Lansang River. And so China is upstream from all of the other countries. So right. it's actually very important to know, especially because there's there are a lot of dams on the Lansang River. And so it's important to know when dams are being, when they're being opened, when water might be flowing. And China just wasn't an active participant in so, that. So
2: more, more concretely, just so, I mean, I, I have some vague idea, but so not doing so would endanger what, like people who had operating fisheries or... Yeah. or,
0: or um, it might cause droughts. Droughts or floods. Yeah, it or, might yeah. cause floods. Exactly. Yeah. And so actually, um, China has created um, another commission called the lansang mekong Cooperation Framework. And for that, it's China is very much taking the leadership role in that. In that group, it's more recent. It's only been in the past two years. All six
2: countries. All six countries, are, all six are,
0: countries okay. are part of it, and there are um, annual meetings. One just happened a couple of months ago, and and regular meetings with the leaders and main representatives for all of these countries. And in in that framework, China has been uh, much more open about uh, sharing information with mm-hmm. the downstream neighbors. I think it sees it as a forum that's a lot more that they they could have they a bit control more. <laughs> Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Yeah.
2: Uh but I mean but it's you see it you view it as a positive development. I mean, just so that at least they are communicating, uh they're they're maybe starting to, to Tell people it's happening downstream.
0: A little exactly, and there were even instances where, in Vietnam, which is really at the at the lowest at the lowest end, it's the furthest downstream country where they were having serious droughts, and um, China actually allowed water to flow through to Vietnam to try and um, alleviate some of the impacts of the of the droughts that they mm-hmm. were that they were f- facing. But China has a really important role, and it. it's critical that it continues to become more and more engaged. And um, more and more open and transparent with the information. This is these are quite, I think, uh, friendly countries because Southeast Asian nations have a lot of ties culturally with China, and uh, I think there's not as much animosity uh, between the countries as there would be with some of the countries. To the
2: West, like India, let's talk about India. I mean, because again, major Indian rivers originate in Tibet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's got to be an issue. I mean, a lot of people. I, I I think a lot of people are really worried from a sort of security angle about mm-hmm. Chinese control. Um, is that is that an issue that you guys take on as well?
0: Well, we have uh, colleagues that are based in uh, South Asia, in in Delhi and in uh, Mumbai, mm-hmm. Bombay, but it's it's. Um, It's difficult to kind of sometimes get involved in some of these issues because they are so politically sensitive. Right. And because the the origins for the rivers also are in the Tibetan Plateau, which is also a super um, sensitive sensitive area for China.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, wow. I mean, this has just been a a delight, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, We've both learned a lot, as I'm sure many of our listeners have as well. So before we get on to recommendations, um, I do want to tell people— so, so before we get on to recommendations, can you, Stephanie, can you tell people who want to get involved what they might be able to do to support the work of International Rivers in China or, or anywhere where they happen to be?
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, so we've got a website. It's internationalrivers.org. Mm-hmm. We um, organize every year also something called Day of Action for Rivers. It happens on March 14th. So we've just missed it but maybe they can keep that in mind for for future actions and sure. basically people from all over the world undertake some sort of action f- to show that they're protecting um, their rivers and so there's a, a, a huge diversity of activities and we always love seeing what people do and come up with but um just you remember know.
2: it's pie day pie day oh yeah right, exactly right, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, but people 14th. but i'm happy if people reach out to me as well personally my contact information is on the website as well
2: great Stephanie that's that's terrific Um, so with that let's uh, get on to recommendations but first uh, this quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina sign up for our free daily email newsletter or better yet join our SubChina access program for early ad free versions of this podcast for bonus weekly roundup newsletters every Friday and for access to our Slack channel where you can talk to our editorial team and to our guests that we bring on for special chat sessions and don't forget to leave us a positive review on the iTunes store thanks a lot Uh, Now on
1: recommendations, Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Okay, I'd recommend something a little gloomy, but excellent. Christopher Hitchens, his last book on dying. It's called Mortality, simply, and uh, it's a very good short read um, and very enjoyable despite the bleak subject matter. Excellent, man. Now, Ste- Stephanie, you're up next. Uh, what do you have for us?
0: Well, there's um, a book that I'm reading, and so far enjoying a lot. Um, and it's related to rivers. It's on uh, the Ganges River, actually. Um, it, it came out. It came out recently. It's called "River of Life, River of Death: uh-huh. um, The Ganges and India's Future." Um, and it seems to be one a book that that explains the importance of the river culturally and also economically. And so far, it's a good read. But because I haven't because I'm only really at the beginning of reading it, I wanted to recommend um, a book that I loved uh, and read recently, which came out years ago, and it's by Wangari Mathai. It's called *Unbowed*, okay. and she is um, an environmentalist uh, from Kenya who created this Green Belt Movement. And uh, she, you know, is one of the first women to earn a doctorate in East Eastern Africa. She won the Nobel Prize in 2004 for her work uh, with the Green Belt Movement and empowering women and getting people involved in environmental protection. And it's an incredible, it's an incredible story.
2: Great, that's an excellent recommendation. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely check out that book. Uh, my recommendation is also for a book, more um, an audio book, I mean. It's for uh, the David Todd Roy translation of the late Ming classic, the uh, erotic novel Jin Ping Mei, uh, the Plum in the Golden Vase. Uh, like I said, on Audible, um, an audio book. It's narrated by this guy named George Backman, and he just has the perfect voice for this. Um, it's really expressive. He has this kind of wryness and this kind of whimsy and humor in, in his voice. And he actually pronounces the Chinese really admirably well. Um, you know, he, he gets like the umlaut you and all that stuff correctly. You know, at, at least it's tolerable. <laughs> I mean, which is not the case with a lot of audiobooks books where, where there's a lot of Chinese names. I'm, I'm only, you know, maybe a third of the way through the first volume, and I think Audible only has the first two of what are five volumes of this. Oh, my God. And this one is like 17 hours. Uh, So it's a lot of listening, but already very much worthwhile. I've got a long flight, so I'm going to just indulge in that. Uh, Much cheaper, I think, actually, as an audiobook than as a paperback, especially if you're a subscriber. I figured I'd finally read it because I'd been spending a lot of time on this trip with Brendan O'Kane, who apparently gave this really great talk about it at the bookworm uh, that I I managed to miss. But I don't want to miss all the the, the references that he's constantly making to it next time I see him. But uh, Stephanie, thanks so much for joining. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Kaiser and Jeremy.
2: Jeremy, is always great to talk to you, man. Let on The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcast, the Tyson Seneca Business Brief. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.